The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. And what better time to talk about a 60-plus-year-old comic novel? This is Reading in the Time of Monsters, Episode 4. I'm your host, Peter. And today, we'll be discussing a novel that I like. Uh, that I love. I think it's more appropriate to say. And that is A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. But, as is traditional... Before we go into the meat of this podcast episode, I am going to uh, do the traditional self-criticism, where I point out criticisms. Well, in some cases, they're criticisms made by others, but that I've taken on board and accepted for myself. There's the usual performance-based criticisms that I need to work on my ums and ahs and what have you. I like to think I'm getting slowly better with that. There's... uh, production self-criticism, which is that this episode is much later than I would have liked it to be. Late February, early March was pretty difficult in terms of health, being busy with work, and so on. So this came late. I apologize. I intend on having three episodes in March. I'm going to have my first guest on in March, and there will also be my first paid episode in March, which I'm sure you're all looking forward to my first paywalled episode. I was gonna, I was saying that it was gonna be the odd numbered episodes, but it's kind of looking like it's gonna be the even ones, or maybe just somewhat more unpredictable than that. I don't know. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm, I well, I don't think anyone really cares about that. Anyway, substantive self criticism. A friend of mine uh, brought up my use of the word developmentalism as meaning the sort of literature, and not just fiction, but also this trope is used in nonfiction, where any given growing thing, usually a person, but it could also be a a country or a movement or what have you, uh, is always predetermined what it is from the beginning, sort of in the seed form, like how the usual metaphor is, the, the oak tree is already there in the acorn. It just grows into what it is. And you see that trope pretty frequently in biography, in literature, sometimes other parts of history. And I criticized it uh, primarily in my episode on a mediocre biography of Hunter S. Thompson. But it comes up, I think, also in my episode on uh, Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This. It's a very common, once you know to look for it, it's a very common trope or set of tropes. And I'm not saying that it's always wrong, but I do think that we default to it sometimes. So a friend of mine brought up my use of the developmentalism as this word, as as the word for this trope. This friend uh, studies and works in the field of developmental psychology. And I think my using the word developmental, in that sense, rankled him. And I could see his point. I found myself casting about for a term to use as I was writing and recording those episodes. I did consider using the word organicist. So in making this criticism, I'm pretty influenced by the work of Hayden White, who was a theorist, historiographer, wrote a book called Metahistory where he 
describes 19th century historical writing as partaking of many of the classical tropes of literature and rhetoric, one of which is sort of this organicist trope. You see certain works of history from that period really uh, laying a lot of emphasis on the idea, especially this is when uh, national history kind of comes on board with people like von Ronke, emphasizing that there's sort of a seed of a given nation and it grows into itself, what it was always destined to be as time goes by. And I see a parallel there. Not that, you know, uh, Peter Richardson, the author of that Hunter S. Thompson biography, probably has some vague idea who Von Ronke is. I don't think he was reading Von Ronke and decided to apply that to the life of a gonzo journalist. I just think that there are these topoi, these clusters of tropes out there that people glom on to different times for different reasons. And White used the term organicist. He didn't use developmentalist. I didn't use organicist because I thought it might be still more confusing. You might think of kind of hippie stuff. You might think organic farming. But I now realize that developmentalist can be confusing too because you might think developmental psychology, developmental economics. Uh, to a certain extent, I, will, I know more about developmental economics than I do developmental psychology. But my understanding is that both actually do sometimes partake of that kind of acorn oak thinking, right? Uh, my friend, I think, suggested something like the term ontological determinism. Uh, he might have had a couple extra clauses in there. It was a little bit clunky. Uh, I, I couldn't think of anything better. But the point is, all these fields do sometimes partake of this ontological determinism. But I do know from knowing my friend and knowing other people who use developmentalist fields that many of them are critical of that kind of thinking as well, that they don't need me to tell them that there are other ways for processes to go than acting out the logic of a seed. So uh, apologies to any developmental psychologists out there. I appreciate that you're uh, critical about some of these biases. But I, I needed a term. That's why I chose. I might, I might, if I discuss it much further, I might try out a different term. But for now, it's kind of what I got. I also don't want to imply that this sort of ontological determinism or developmentalism is the only trope or topoi in literature, though you, you do see it all over the place. There's plenty of others. I don't want to create it as this like bad guy in the culture. That's something I've kind of noticed in political and cultural criticism outside of the academy, especially that you wind up with the community around say a podcast or a blog or a YouTube channel choosing one or two enemy figures or enemy topoi, I guess, right? The idea that there are certain ideas out there 
that are the enemy that represent everything that's gross and cringeworthy and whatever other terms you want to use. And you can see these communities when they talk to each other, picking those out wherever they find them and saying, aha, here we have, for instance, uh, in politics, it's often neoliberal. If you hang out in leftist cultural spaces, people will say, oh, this is neoliberal and that's neoliberal. And I happen to, I'm a leftist and I think neoliberalism is a very important concept. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, we can't use the word neoliberal anymore. It's been overused. But it is sometimes a little overused when we could have more precision in language. So I don't want people running around saying, oh, developmentalism, that's, we gotta, we gotta root that out wherever we find it. I'm sure there's been plenty of good work uh, done with your acorn seed oak metaphors. I just think that you ought to think more about these things. You ought to try to see whether it actually fits the situation. Because sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does not. In any event, the same friend suggested that I could uh, talk about a book that I like for a podcast. So in that first podcast, I did talk about a book that I felt largely positive about, Mark Fisher's Capitalist Realism, though a fair amount of the book or that podcast was spent talking about the weaknesses of, that, uh, of Fisher's work and the work of Fisher's epigones. I did like the book. But then I talked about that Hunter S. Thompson biography. I talked about No One Is Talking About This, which were both books that even more than I disliked them, and I didn't like either of them, I didn't like what they implied about literature or history as it's being written more broadly. But as I sort of fell behind schedule and was thinking about how to proceed with this podcast, this friend suggested I try talking about something I like making up for not doing my second episode in February. I was planning on doing another one on a book I didn't like. But when he suggested I do a book that I do like, I felt myself feeling more encouraged. Positivity. Sometimes, sometimes it helps. I will discuss that bad book later. It's actually one of the books that was recommended me by a friend uh, who paid at the Chieftain level. So if you want all of the podcasts, you have to pay up. You have to go to Melendia Avenue Review on Substack and pay $5 a month or 50 a year for citizen-level access. But you can pay more to be a chieftain. And if you're a chieftain, you get to send me a book. Well, not necessarily. You don't have to pay for it. I can find it myself, provided it's at all affordable. Um, so yeah, if that interests you, and you should get them while they're while they're relatively cheap, because if this podcast ever gets big, I'm going to have to raise the prices on that, because otherwise people could buy out my whole reading schedule very cheaply. But early adopter prices, we love it. Anyway, we're going to talk about a book that I like, and unfortunately, I think I'm going to have to begin by talking about its publication history. That's what I usually do, not necessarily publication history, but I try and give context for the book. And in this case, the context is important and something of a long story. And it's also become a legend of sorts, a topic for debate in some circles. But the book is A Confederacy of Dunces. It was written by John Kennedy Toole, who was a academic and struggling writer, I guess you could say, someone who attempted to write 
he finished this novel in 1963, but it was only published in 1980. Toole sent a confederacy of dunces out to publishers, most notably uh, Knopf, Alfred A. Alfred A. Knopf, or Knopf, I can never remember how it's supposed to be pronounced, where one Robert Gottlieb, who was one of the famous editors of his time, uh, engaged in an extended uh, back and forth with Toole, both encouraging him and telling him ways he needed to change the novel radically in order to publish it before ultimately rejecting it. The reason it was published in 1980 was that Toole killed himself in 1969. He was a lifelong depression sufferer. And eventually, after a string of failures, including the failure to publish Confederacy of Dunces, took his own life. His mother, with whom he was quite close throughout his life, uh, attempted to shop the novel around, eventually finding Walker Percy, the novelist and academic, who I believe was based at either Louisiana State University or Tulane at the time. He actually, My copy of it actually includes an introduction by Walker Percy, where he says he didn't want to read this book. It was shoved into his hands sometime in the late 70s, by a distraught mother of a suicide. And he thought, well, you know, I have to at least look at it. And then he discovered what he had, which was Confederacy of Dunces. He saw it into print. It was originally published by Louisiana State University Press, eventually acquired by Grove Press, and it became a huge hit. It won the Pulitzer in 1980, um, and has been a very popular book, especially as far as books that could also be considered literary. And here we get into some interesting definitional questions, but it's been a pretty popular book ever since. There have been numerous attempts at film adaptations uh, to the point where some say that it is cursed, the attempt to adapt this to film, uh, in that I think at least four of the people who have been cast or who have been discussed as playing the main character have died prematurely because uh, John Jim Belushi at one point they were thinking I hope I'm getting the right Belushi the the famous one not the one from King of Queens or whatever it is Jim John I don't remember but one of the Belushi's the more famous one uh, John Candy uh, Chris Farley were all considered for the main character and we'll get into who that is in a minute uh, John Waters at one point wanted to adapt it and wanted Divine to play the main character Divine also died prematurely. Later attempts to make the film usually didn't involve the potential lead actor dying. I mean, they've talked about John Goodman and Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis have all been talked about as playing Ignatius J. Riley. They're all still alive, but they've never successfully made the film. Steven Soderbergh was talking about doing it about almost 20 years back now, and he couldn't get it off the ground. They made a theatrical adaptation where Ron Offerman from Parks and Rec plays the main character i saw it in boston it was okay not great um but either way it's routinely assigned in high schools or or so i've been informed uh students like it people like it seemingly it's pretty popular it's not an easy book to attack though we'll talk a little bit about uh one notable attempt to do so uh, I think at least some of its publication history, 
makes it a little impolitic to attack. And I read it when first when I was a teenager. It was recommended to me by a friend uh, who I went to high school with, and I, I loved it from the beginning, and I've reread it a number of times, and I've loved it more each time. So I figure I might as well describe the plot of the book. The book takes place in early 1960s New Orleans and centers on the adventures of one Ignatius J. Riley. Riley is in his 30s. He lives with his widowed mother in a neighborhood of New Orleans, Constantinople Street. He is a uh, self-proclaimed genius at odds with the spirit of his age. He is obsessed with the Middle Ages. Uh, claims to be a Catholic that is too conservative for the papacy circa 1963. He is very large. Uh, he's described as this, you know, sort of gargantuan figure, tall, fat, flatulent. He has a big mustache, dresses somewhat eccentrically. He mostly stays in his room where he writes, as he puts it, a lengthy indictment of our century, but is forced out into the world when his mother, who's something of a drunk, crashes a family car, uh, causes damage to another car. They need to, they need some money, more money than the small pension that the, the widow uh, Riley has. And so uh, Ignatius is forced to work, forced to go out into New Orleans. He has a couple of jobs. He works at a pants factory uh, as a filing clerk. He works uh, manning a hot dog cart on the streets of New Orleans. He also absconds from work in order to engage in other misadventures with assorted uh, people. Primarily his goal is to, in these misadventures, is to come up with some sort of plan to shock and annoy an interlocutor of his. The closest thing he has to a love interest, Myrna Minkov. Uh, when, When Riley was a student at Tulane, Minkov was one of his classmates. She's a New York radical who enjoyed Riley's fiery uh, denunciations of things, even though she understands they're not on the same side politically. She liked that he liked to mix things up. So they have this weird frenemy-type relationship expressed through these letters to each other. And so Riley goes out and tries to engage in various kinds of political agitation or social agitation to show up Myrna and show who the real radical is. Meanwhile, his mother gets close to a uh, group of people, relatively normal New Orleans residents, though eccentric in their own right, The who are encouraging her to... Uh, do something with Ignatius to put him in a insane asylum as his behavior gets more and more outrageous uh, and limiting on what Irene, the mother, is capable of doing. Eventually, along with a number of other subplots involving characters like the owner of a dive bar who wants to class up her establishment with some adult performances, a uh, homeless black man who is constantly being uh, harassed by the police and is looking to find ways to do some sabotage of his own, A the owner of the pants factory, various other characters, they kind of crisscross each other uh, in these sort of elaborate 
patterns that create these that all kind of come together in the end to create this uh figure of that's not the right way to put it they come together in the end to tie up various of the loose ends of the plot in ways that are most people find uh, amusing and satisfying i don't want to spoil too much of it give too much away but that's the basics of the plot they're structural structurally i would say that it reminds me of some of the works of one of the other great arguably the great comic novelist in 20th century english pg woodhouse uh, where you have these ele- these seemingly disparate elements set into motion, put into sort of a uh, box with each other, right? A given setting, and they're set to kind of bounce off of each other in a variety of amusing and unpredictable ways, and then tied up. There's, you see that also in uh, comedy, in film and TV. My favorite example would actually be Arrested Development, where the TV show, where you have all of these uh, jokes that only pay off after numerous episodes, where you have to wonder how far in advance did the writers plan all this, these little goofs, uh, even just based off the names of things, uh, you know, long-term puns even, leaving aside the plots, which can be a bit contrived, though I think contrived doesn't have to always be this terrible insult like people say it is. I guess we might as well get into some of the commentary on the book, which, like I say, largely adulatory, right? It won the Pulitzer, which is an interesting prize. It's kind of more of a populist literary prize, if there is such a thing. It's it's more directed towards things that are popular than uh, with a somewhat broader reading public than a lot of the other prizes, like the American Book Award or you know the Booker International or certainly the Nobel. I think to the extent that official literary culture might or might not really accept a confederacy of dunces to the extent they don't accept it, it's just by ignoring it. I remember asking a professor of mine early in my, my grad school career who taught sort of a mishmash of literature, philosophy, and history if he had read a confederacy of dunces. This particular professor actually taught a course on tragedy, so I thought it would be interesting to see what he thought about a comic novel. And he said, oh, I've heard of it. You know, he didn't, he, he hadn't read it, he, and he didn't seem very interested in it. But every night, you know, people will try. So a few years ago, this guy, Tom Bissell, a writer who's written, I think, mostly memoirs, stuff about being a cocaine addict at one point, stuff about uh, video games and so on, uh, wrote this article kind of half-assedly trying to rebuke or, or cancel if you will, a confederacy of dunces. So some of the political stuff comes up. Uh, the obvious thing is that the character of Ignatius J. Riley, from the perspective of the 2020, sounds a lot like a 4chan troll, right? He's openly reactionary, hostile, uh, doesn't like uh, deviant sexuality, right? Violent sexuality, which pretty much only comes out in terms of violently masturbating. Um you know, if you if you ran into, you know, a big eccentrically dressed fat guy in his thirties who lives with his mother today who was screaming about how we need a good reactionary pope, we all know what his politics would be like. So he uses that angle, even though he knows that Tool was in no way endorsing his character's views. He I think in some places basically sneers 
at Tool for killing himself. Uh, he he he, he kind of does some you know crocodile tears about it, but it's clear that he is on Gottlieb's side. That he thinks that Gottlieb was right in rejecting a confederacy of dunces, and that that had nothing to do with Tool's suicide. Uh, that Gottlieb was right in his essential argument against a confederacy of dunces, which is that everything you write has to have a point. And he felt that a confederacy of dunces did not have enough of a point. I did actually a whole video about this uh, back when that Bissell piece ran in the New Yorker. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. I don't want to regurgitate it all here. I do think that one of the things that makes literary culture in the kind of Anglosphere uncomfortable with the Confederacy of Dunces is that it does not have a moral in any real sense. People don't get any kind of uh, comeuppance. There's not much in the way of what you could call personal growth. What there is happens in large part due to accident and circumstance and often humiliation rather than whatever kind of epiphany or hard work or the various things that our culture will accept as causing the transformation. Uh, that is supposed that's supposed to happen in these novels. Uh, I think that there's a certain extent to which literary culture has always uh, been funny about humor, uh, going back even as far as the Romans, who had many, who had a, a more or less official place in their literature for humor, for satire, but that's because at least some of our older predecessors in sort of the line of civilization made sure to have to incorporate the opposite of whatever the official culture was. I've been reading a little bit about this lately, the ways in which Ovid or Juvenal were very respected Roman poets and writers, but it was on the idea that you give a seat at the table to somebody who will say about the official culture, right? Your Virgils, your Horaces, the people who were writing about how Rome actually was the fulfillment of prophecy and writing about the official virtues that people were supposed to have and mythological examples of them. But Roman society also included a space for someone to say, well, that's all kind of horseshit, isn't it? Life being what it is, there's, you know, there's, there's things wrong with this picture. And it's funny, you know, we pride ourselves on our... Uh, advances on our greater openness in comparison to societies in the past. In some cases, that's merited. But the idea that uh, somebody ought to be saying that some of the things that we accept maybe aren't as true as we would like them to be, that that's not something that sort of the equivalence of your Horaces and your Virgils, or really the equivalence of the people who like to read those people, uh, want to accept in contemporary literature, I don't think have in American society, except for you know occasional outbreaks of good humor, uh, pretty much ever uh, from the establishment of American culture. Whenever you want to date that too, you could argue that like the late '70s, early '80s were actually kind of a funny time in American literary culture, where there was a little bit of a thaw, kind of a delayed reaction to the '60s where literature tried to uh, be satirical or be at least be accepting of satire, accepting of humor. And that is possibly where Confederacy of Dunces had its window 
I'm not saying it was necessarily the best time for literature, but you do see in the 80s in particular, I think in large part because the literary establishment really wasn't sure what it was supposed to be doing in the wake of all of the cultural changes that happened in mid-century, where they experimented with opening itself more to things like, again, satire, humor, also genre, right? This is when they you, you saw academic criticism start to explore things like science fiction more. It all kind of went by the wayside or got channeled into these less productive, in my mind, uh, alleyways over the decades, but that's a story for another day. Uh, so yeah, I think that I think that Robert Gottlieb was uncomfortable with humor, was uncomfortable with anything like a kind of what, what they call a Menopean satire that doesn't uh, wind up enforcing some sort of moral or lesson like literature is supposed to do, supposedly. Uh, and I think on the other side of it, the aspects of the literary world that place less emphasis on a moral or a point would put more emphasis on uh, what they would call experimentation, what I would call obfuscation most of the time. So the Confederacy of Nonsense doesn't appeal to sort of literary elitists because it's easy to read and understand. Whereas, and, and it's interesting, whereas it kind of seems to be that a lot of your uh, literary fiction experimentalists see good literature as meaning obscure, boring, hard to understand. So it kind of doesn't get a lot of love from either side, but it gets a lot of love from people in general who like reading. And it gets a lot of love from me. So why why is this book good? As far as I'm concerned, why is it important? Well, uh, that's a... I've been thinking about how to approach this, and I'm still not entirely sure. I guess I would say that humor is, you know, I was about to say humor is important, and that's such an anodyne way to put it. I think that, among other things, what Tool accomplishes in a confederacy of dunces is kind of tying together the two traditional kind of funny halves of the Western literary tradition. So you have your tragedies, you have your epics, your romances, your elegies, your what have your war stories, what have you. Those aren't necessarily supposed to be funny, though sometimes they have funny bits. It's there are parts of uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey that were probably supposed to be funny to people in a in a pretty gory way to the people reading them. The two two of the forms in Western literature that are supposed to have some fun, uh, uh, you know, amusing elements to them are satire and comedy. Traditionally, they didn't necessarily need to be kind of slapping your knees laugh a minute type stuff. If you read juvenile, juvenile satires of Roman society, they sound kind of more bitter than funny a lot of the time. Similarly, Shakespeare's comedies, right, the traditional shorthand for comedy was everyone gets married in the end, as opposed to a tragedy where everyone dies. But you are allowed a certain amount more levity and laughter in classical comedy. Tool combines both here in that you have this wide-ranging satire, not just of different types of New Orleanians, or different types of Americans at that time. I actually think that aspect of it is fine, but not the strongest aspect. Also is one of the aspects that opens it up to certain types of criticism, right? Tom Bissell kind of put a finger, dipped a toe in an effort to cancel Confederacy of Dunces, to use a contemporary term, on the idea that it was, in some sense, not racially uh, progressive enough. If I think if he wanted to go for a full-throated attempt to cancel Confederacy of Dunces, he would do what? Someone I knew a long time ago tried to convince all of us to not like it because Tool writes 
a black character in black dialect. Uh, never mind that he writes most of the characters in some manner of dialect. Many of the white characters are also written in sort of New Orleanian Southern dialect or Cajun dialect. I mean, Cajun, Cajunized English. They're meant to sound strange that the characters who speak standard English don't come off any smarter than the black character or the Cajun characters or anything else. Um, you know, it was a white guy writing in, in black dialect. I think if that uh, guy were a little more on the ball or perhaps had read more of the book, I, I kind of suspect he didn't finish it. He would probably see uh, more stereotypes. He would have said there's a part where uh, Riley engages with the gay Demamond of New Orleans. And I wouldn't say that the characters are terribly offensive, though as a straight guy, I guess it's not my job to decide. But they're definitely, you know, fairly stereotypical. Uh, so you could get them on that. But I think that the satire, satirical elements that are important here are less holding up a mirror to different types of people and saying, ha you're foible, though you do get that. The satire that's important here is a satire on the ideas of personal growth, of societal progress, of uh, prosperity, of fitness, of basically most of the goals that a Bissell or a Gottlieb or... I mean, probably that professor of mine back in New York, uh, of almost every aspect of official culture in this country, all the things that they think you should be pursuing. Uh, academia as well, right? There's a subsection of the book, it comes up a couple times, which doesn't really have any relationship to the plot, but it is about this professor at Tulane who's terrified that that crazy fat guy was going to come back and start terrorizing him for not actually grading his papers Uh And, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the plot, but it's funny every time it comes up because you get this really, in a very small number of pages, Tool uh, pretty deftly characterizes this professor type and what it would be like for him to encounter someone like an Ignatius J. Riley. And I've said that uh, Tool does not necessarily agree with Riley's viewpoints on things. Many people have interpreted the character of Ignatius J. Riley as basically being a stand-in for John Kennedy Toole. That's one thing that Tom Bissell and I agree on, that that's wrong. Uh, Toole actually was, for early on in his life, reasonably successful. He got through college early. He went to Columbia. He got, I know he got his master's. I don't remember if he got a PhD. He taught at Tulane and at a few other places. He was a very popular professor. He was actually, he never got married, but he was pretty uh, popular with women. He was known for being witty and personable. Um, people who knew him knew that he had this depressive side, but that shouldn't be surprising to anyone who really knows what depression is like, that some people are capable of living with depression, but putting up this front of uh, amiability and even sociability, right? That's definitely a thing in this world that people often don't appreciate. Um, but... At the same time, Riley, or sorry, Tool never quite sells Riley out, if that makes sense. So Riley is a ridiculous character. Terrible things happen to him. He does terrible things. He's routinely humiliated. He's hurt as well, particularly by his mother. The relationship with the mother is extremely painful. I say this as someone who's quite close with my own mother and wouldn't dream of saying anything like what Riley says to his mother routinely. He, he bullies her and harasses her. But at the same time, his mother is trying to send him up the river to an insane asylum. Uh, and that's sad. And Tool never tries to say that it's not. And at the end of the day, and this is where the comedy comes in, at the end of the day, or rather at the end of the book, 
there is an extent to which, despite being entirely wrong-headed about so many things, and really kind of crippled, like, one way in which Riley is really not like Tool is he can't leave New Orleans. He tells this story over and over again about how he tried to go up to Baton Rouge for an academic interview when he was trying to be a medievalist academic. And he was just so terrified of being on the bus and so carsick that he forced the bus to pull over to the side of the road and made a cab come from New Orleans to get him, uh, and thus ended his attempt at an academic career. Whereas Tool traveled, he lived in New York, he lived in Puerto Rico when he was in the army, like, that's where he wrote the book. Uh, Despite his wrongheadedness and his incapacity and the fact that his ideas aren't actually better, and in most cases usually worse than those around him, through a combination of circumstance and his own singularity, Riley does show up the hollowness of a lot of the pretenses at work. He shows up the hollowness of the uh, sort of the idea of personal growth as pursued by uh, figures like uh, Officer Mancuso, who's an officer who tries to arrest him at the beginning of the book, and who, uh, for, for loitering, which he later backfires on him, uh, for various reasons, Mancuso is kind of taken in by uh, Riley's mother, and uh, Riley, in an attempt to uh, help the sad sack Officer Mancuso, who's kind of this young attempting to be kind of a community resource type cop trying to help people out but at the same time he's constantly being belittled and baited by the more reactionary officers in his precinct gives uh mancuso a copy of the works of boethius the late roman philosopher uh, who counseled uh people to accept their fate uh accept that because everything on earth is conditioned by fortune what we might call entropy that failure is always inevitable. Uh, and so you get these scenes where Mancuso, he's, in, he's just hanging out in a men's bathroom trying to find, you know, perverts, quote-unquote. He's, he's getting a cold from being in this, this dank bathroom all day. He's trying to parse this Roman philosopher. And he's like, man, why, did, why, why would anyone give, give anyone a book like this to cheer anyone up? But at the end of the day, Boethius does wind up coming in quite handy for Officer Mancuso. I don't want to spoil why. Um, you, uh, Tool shows up... Uh, and here we're, we're, we get into somewhat dicier territory in that uh, in that Riley, and I think it's fair to say Tool, is somewhat skeptical of the potential of uh, politics to change things, right? Uh, Riley gets involved in an effort to uh, raise the wages of the workers at the pants factory, but he kind of takes the effort over. He tries to turn it into, he tries to get the mostly black employees to riot. The black employees aren't interested in doing that. Uh, he gets involved with the gay scene in New Orleans, also tries to direct the local gay people uh, to some sort of world-rending scheme, which naturally they wind up not being interested in. He gets mad at them. Uh, and the character of Myrna Minkoff is also presented as this sort of uh, activist who just sort of does it uh, out of an interest in shocking the bourgeoisie and out of a misplaced sense of arrogance. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone who engages with politics. I'm someone who tries to do organizing. Uh, on a mass basis. But I still, I know those types of characters and I'm willing to have them exist in a fictional world and laugh at them and laugh with the author because they do exist and they are a thing. And especially I think at this point uh, in the early 60s, particularly white radicals, um, you know, they, they weren't necessarily the strongest and most thoroughgoingly committed bunch. But in any event, 
I don't want to detail each way in which Riley actually does pretty convincingly lead to either through his example or through circumstance does show that at the end of the day, whatever sort of consolation, right? And then we're getting back to Boethius, a consolation philosophy, whatever other consolation you put up there, whatever you try to place between you and random chance and the inevitability of death, that it's, you know, that it's false in some sense, right? It's, it, or if, if it's not entirely false, if it's still worth doing, right? Uh, it's still at least a little bit leaky because you're still going to die. Your efforts will likely either fail or uh, be not exactly what you thought they were going to be. Again, none of this is meant to say that you shouldn't try to grow personally, that you shouldn't try to advance a social cause or make money or have romance or be fit or whatever else, whatever the other consolations or goals that people have. Just that at the end of the day, the nature of the universe being what it is, it's going to fail, at least a little. And that's all right. And it's in that sense that through, in large part, spreading entropy, spreading failure, spreading chaos, the tool is actually, tool shows Riley as actually capable in this perverse kind of way of bringing a certain cosmic justice or anyway, people winding up where they ought to be that brings it in line with the classic idea of the comic, right? Because at the end of the comedy, it, everybody everybody's married or the inheritance gets properly settled, if not necessarily according to the letter of the law, then according to how things should be, things wind up in some sort of order. And at the end of the day, uh, and I think this is, this really bothers the Bissells that got leaves of the world, uh, Riley escapes the attempts at confinement. Um, various people... Most of the characters, I would say, are somewhat happier than how they started, if in a weird backwards kind of way. One or two do wind up getting just desserts in a somewhat more negative sense. But by and large, what you have here is both a satire in the classical sense and a comedy in the classical sense, which I know that satire is often understood in contemporary vocabulary is basically like slightly mean or topical comedy. But traditionally, they were two very different genres, and marrying like them like this isn't easy. So I went on that whole spiel about satire and comedy in large part because I wanted to find a reason why the humor is so important here. And that was a little bit of a cop-out on my case. I intended to talk about that stuff anyway, but I don't know. It kind of also seems to me like humor is important because it makes this whole enterprise of living considerably more worthwhile than it would be otherwise. And I think if if we take written long-form prose as one of our highest art forms than art that partakes, or rather long-form prose that partakes of that element of life, humor, that helps make life worth living, deserves to be taken seriously and, and honored in the way, in the same way that uh, prose that reflects other aspects of human experience, the tragic, uh, the the noble whatever else that as much as they are right that professor taught a class on tragedy i don't think in a million years would he teach a course on humor now admittedly due to i think both the kind of basic nature of comedy and you know at this point thousands of years of cultural reception it would actually be a lot harder to teach a good course on humor than it would be to teach a good course on tragedy among other things and this is one of the reasons why i'm not relating like a lot of scenes from the book 
uh, it's hard to explain a joke and have it still be funny. Uh, for another, there's just considerably more analysis of criticism has largely taken tragedy more seriously than humor. Uh, so he'd have a lot more to work with. Uh, in terms of characterization, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna present a concept. Uh, I very humbly named it after myself. It's called uh, it's called whether or not a character is Berard complete. Oh, I've revealed my last name. It's Berard. Uh, I usually just introduce myself by my first names in these things, but it probably wouldn't be easy enough to figure out my surname as well. Um, a Berard complete character is a character that is fleshed out and believable, but is not tediously psychologized. Uh, where we don't go into kind of unnecessary depth to prove that a given character uh, is uh, complex enough to be worth caring about. Oftentimes this involves misappropriations from the field of psychology, from psychoanalysis, or from other models of the human mind. I guess the reason why this is important to me has to do with some of my ideas about literature and the human. I think that if literature is really going to understand the human experience, it has to give some acknowledgement, not just to the ways in which we are all unique and noble and tragic, but to some of the ways in which we are uh, inadequate, uh, similar to each other, not in some overall human sense, but in the sense of we're not actually all that original most of the time uh, in that there, I do think that everyone has a lot going on in them. People are complicated, but I also think there's an extent to which people are kind of simple. Most people certainly. Um, and moreover, that complexity is not the same thing as nobility. The character with the rich inner life uh, and the one who talks about having a rich inner life in Confederacy of Dunces is Ignatius J. Riley, and he is a madman who makes everyone around him miserable. Uh, so yeah, I think that the other characters in the story, ranging from Gloria, the mother, to Officer Mancuso, uh, the owner of the nightclub that features in... Uh, the book, and the Darlene, who wants to make it as an exotic dancer in her nightclub, the Levies, the husband who owns the factory and his wife who uh, annoys him, uh, Jones, the black homeless man who is exploited by the local police and by the nightclub owner, um, everyone else, I think, there's a way which most of them you could call stereotypes, but I think the tool draws them deftly enough and with recognizable motivations recognizable ethos if that makes sense but without having to tell us everything about their childhoods uh their dreams their aspirations whether or not relevant some cases they are uh without basically throwing in the kitchen sink to prove that he's done uh his homework and his due diligence and his thinking seriously uh because I guess one of, the, one of the other things with humor is that either you laugh or you don't. There isn't really a court of appeal. You, you can sometimes say, oh, this person just doesn't get it. This person doesn't get our humor. But for the most part, the people who say stuff like that, you kind of know. Like, if, if you try and make it as a comedian, 
and then you say and you fail and you say oh people just didn't get it you might be way ahead of your time but more likely you're just failing you didn't say something funny you didn't say something that other people recognized as having to do with their experience or saying something true or even just saying something amusingly false and you're just making up excuses whereas if you're trying to write a tragedy or a character study or whatever else you actually can or you're allowed to within the conventions of that type of writing or or artistic production say oh well you know you're just too shallow to understand what i'm doing here and i think what that winds up doing is that you wind up with a lot of posturing around tragedy and you wind up with a lot of uh if it, you could just kind of take on the pose of the tragedian and that could do a lot of work for you you do wind up with people especially in popular culture who kind of posture as though they're funny when they're not and expect people to laugh that's large and, and when people do it's largely i think out of social convention that's kind of the character of david brent in the office right not funny but constantly goes around joking or acting like everything's a joke and in large part because people are either polite or he's he employs them people do laugh um, but in general, I think there's a way in which there's a test of humor. There's some sort of independent test, which is, do you laugh or not? There's an, it's kind of an autonomic response that there isn't for most other forms of literature. There are, I, I would also say that it's not quite as strong of a response, but with crime or thriller literature, you're expected to get some kind of emotional investment in the action, or even if it's not an emotional investment, an intellectual investment in figuring out what's going on if it's a investigation or you're really kind of um you're engaged in a more visceral way uh, you do get that in some areas of literature as well but you know we'll leave that aside for now maybe we could that could actually make a good episode right where novels where you're where literary novels where the engagement is kind of figuring it out versus whatever sort of emotional engagement you're supposed to be doing Anyway, so that's the idea of the Berard complete character. I would say that, you know, most of the characters here, especially Ignatius J. Riley, are Berard complete. They're characterized, but they're not tediously psychologized. The last point I want to make, um, I've been talking about, you know, humor versus tragedy, or I've been t- I have been opposing them. I actually kind of don't want to oppose them completely in that I think both are uh, profound and important concepts and topoi in literature throughout certainly you know what we call western literature but i think arguably literature throughout the world i'm not an expert on literature in other parts of the world so i don't want to be definitive one way or the other um people talk about tragicomedy uh this is confederacy of dunces has been described as a tragicomedy i think there is some truth in that um we already discussed the conflict between riley and his mother i think that a lot of comedy or a lot of humor and certainly a lot of the humor that particularly moves me is about a, not so much any particular kind of interpersonal tragedy or necessarily about the seedbed of pretty much all tragedy, which is that no matter what we do, we're going to die. So our efforts, to a certain extent, come to naught. Uh, but rather, the trage- what I think of as a tragedy of communication, which is that everyone desperately wants to communicate. They want to say what is going on with them. They want to get that across to others. But that communication is inevitably, at best, 
partial. At best, you can get across some of it. More likely, you're going to get across some perverse version of whatever it is you're trying to say. It'll, and that's going to be down to so many different causes. Your own incapacity to communicate, to formulate signals, words, images, you know, grunts and gestures, whatever you're using, that you won't come up with the right, uh, right things to say, even if there is a perfect thing to say. The likelihood that you'll come up with it is, is small, and the likelihood that there is such a thing is small. There's the inability of others to understand. There's a disinclination of others to understand. There's the active, uh, there's the inclination towards active misunderstanding notionally in one's favor, where you can misunderstand what someone is saying in order to gain some kind of social advantage. Uh, Often enough, doing that doesn't even really work. And then there's just the static of life. There's just, you know, as uh, I think the information theorists say, you know, entropy increases over any given channel over time. Um, I might be misquoting that or misunderstanding that, in which case, if you're an information theorist, feel free to give me a poke and I'll include it in self-correct. Confederacy of Dunces is chock full of these kinds of misunderstandings, most of them stemming from Riley, who communicates arguably in the clearest language of any of these characters. Uh, He is a trained academic. he, He speaks... Uh, if uh, you wouldn't say thoughtfully in the sense of being considerate, but thoughtfully in the sense of he puts thought into what he says, he has a good vocabulary and things make sense on a sentence level, even if they don't make sense conceptually. Um, but still he communicates, he fails to communicate with people from the person he's closest with his mother to random people he meets, hot, hot dog cart vendors and so on. Um, these, uh, in the manner of a lot of, comedies I like a lot, I'll I'll refer again to Arrested Development, Uh, these ramify themselves outward through the channels of social interaction, the little capillaries of society to create, uh, to snowball effect of failed communication, cycling back in often to uh, uh, undermine Riley's attempts to gain some kind of personal satisfaction. crushing all in their path. And I don't know, man. I mean, you've just listened to me try to communicate for an hour. I thought about it for a long time before I did it. I don't know how much I've successfully communicated. Uh, I hope, even if I know that there will be some uh, static in the signal, that I've managed to communicate something about this book that I love to you. If you haven't read it, I suggest picking it up. Uh, And I guess I'll just leave it at that for now. Uh, I'll be back pretty soon with a new episode. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.